0: Hi, I'm Xian Xiao, a healthcare researcher.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker, a palliative care doctor. If you or someone you know is facing a serious illness, you've probably spent many hours in waiting rooms, scared and not sure what to expect. We can help.
0: Together, we've heard from thousands of patients and families dealing with serious illness. Our goal is to share what we've learned so you can be more prepared and in control This is the Waiting Room Revolution, and it starts right now. Welcome back. It's Sien and Sammy. It is the last key for our Waiting Room Revolution, which is called Invite Yourself. And it is the key about inviting yourself to the conversation. It ties up a lot of the keys that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. We often hear how patients are waiting for the healthcare team or the doctor to bring up the news or to bring up if something else is going to happen. And they're just sort of waiting for, you know, the penny to drop. And they're just left waiting.
1: Something that we often see is that patients and families are naturally respectful. They naturally want to be well-behaved and patient and, you know, be really good patients. And so what tends to happen is that they wait for their doctors and nurses to invite them into having conversations. So they hesitate to offer information and they hesitate to ask questions because there's this blinded trust in the doctor and nurse that when information needs to be shared, well, my doctor and my nurse will just share it with me. And if they're not asking me stuff and not telling me stuff, then obviously we just continue to cruise along. But that's not the case, because on the other side, doctors and nurses assume that if patients and families want more information, that they'll ask. And if there was something that they needed to know about the patient or family, that the patient and family would just offer that up. So here we have two sides. We have the patients and families being polite and and good, and we have the nurse and the doctor not imposing and assuming that... You know, no questions means they have no questions. And then as time goes on and the illness becomes busier and this pattern is set in motion, a big, huge gap starts forming where no one's really communicating both sides. They're just, it's like a code of silence. No one's asking questions and often they're not getting information. And this can be very, very dangerous
0: Okay, so help me understand how not having all the information is dangerous.
1: What happens is is that uh, communication lines are closed, and then families and patients are left with whatever is shared with them, which might not be the information that they need to plan ahead for their own life. So again, as we've mentioned before, you're more likely to get standard care because you didn't tell the healthcare team anything about you individually. You're more likely to begin to feel that the care doesn't match what you need and what you want. You may start wondering about things and feel like you have no answers and that can leave people feeling anxious and scared. These types of emotions can actually amplify your physical symptoms. So then the whole Thing ramps up. We start feeling more physical symptoms. That makes us more worried, more anxious. We get more worried and anxious. We have worsening physical symptoms. And really, when you get to the underneath all of that, often it is that a patient and family is feeling mismatched with the care that they're getting, and they're
0: feeling like they don't have the answers that they need. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it can be dangerous in another way as well. When you're waiting to be invited to the conversation and you're waiting and waiting and waiting, it, you're, off, you're, you're losing time, time to prepare, time to come to terms with what's ahead, time to have these moments to enjoy the life and the time that you have because you're spending the time anxious and worrying about, I wish I had asked that question and I really still don't know the answer to this and that. And I'll just go off on a tangent here, but for example, I just remember someone who uh, we interviewed, and it was a wife of a husband, and she was so worried about what's going to happen after this treatment—the second line immunotherapy—that um, they were on. It was working, but there's going to be a day where it doesn't work. You know what is there's no next line. It's how we're going to pay for it. These were all things she was worried about, but she would not ask the oncologist because she's like she's so busy, and if. It's important. She'll tell me. And she was getting all the signals of how positive that we should be because he's doing so well on this drug and most people don't respond. So she never asked about the questions that she was really thinking about, which was about the future. And so she was just very worried and she could never ask in front of her husband because she wanted to stay positive. And so the cycle continues until one day, you know, she'll be told there's nothing more we can do and it'll be very close to, you know, to death's doorstep. So. It's very easy to see how this happens, and I think we're really trying to jolt people to realize you can change that storyline.
1: Most of the illnesses that we're referring to in these episodes are progressive illnesses. They don't stay the same from beginning until the end. They change over time. There are twists and turns, and there should be lots of questions about what's next, what's happening now. If an illness just stayed the same the whole time, there probably wouldn't be as many questions. But remember, these are illnesses that we know from the get-go are going to change over time. They're progressive. There will be a need for decisions multiple times during this illness process. And it is important to know that there should be a lot of questions that come the way of the healthcare team. Uh, every single year there's going to be a different host of new issues that are going to be presented to the family. um, And then at some point every month and then at some point every week and then at some point every day. So people can't afford to just sit back and just wait passively for information coming from the doctor and nurse unless they want to be in a very reactive rhythm with the healthcare system, if they want to stay ahead, and they want to plan and want to be proactive and want to maintain control, maintain a sense of themselves, and free up time to do the things that they really want to do, they better start asking questions and seeking information.
0: Can you give us a sense of what some of the questions that you would ask along the way, say, right at diagnosis of a serious illness?
1: If it were me, I'd be starting to ask lots of questions right from that point forward. Questions like, how serious is this illness? Have you seen this illness before? What does this illness look like over time? What are the kinds of things my family and I need to get ready for? I would be offering the practice information about myself, about how much information I'm interested in, and when I would like to receive information, and how I would like to receive information. So if it was me, I'd be saying, doctor, don't forget, I'm the kind of person who likes lots of information. It makes me feel more grounded when I know what's ahead. Please tell me straight up. I don't want things sugar-coated. I want things told frankly to me so that I can deal with them because it's my life. And if you're thinking, I need to know something, please tell me. Don't hesitate. I want to be openly communicating with you. So these are the kinds of things that um, are important right from the beginning. And it reminds me of when partners renew their vows with each other. You know, after being together for a very long time, they decide, okay, you know, let's recommit with each other. Well, in the very early stage of an illness, it's important to sit down with your healthcare team and renew your vows together. You know, this is a game changer. Uh, I now have this illness. Um, How are we going to walk these roads together?
0: So I think if I were to summarize what you're saying, a key take home is to share, 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 and ask, ask, ask. Yeah, share a lot about yourself and your preferences and ask lots of questions, whatever is on your mind, so you can start preparing and being proactive.
1: Yeah, the other thing about being proactive as um, things change in the illness is knowing ahead what points in the illness am I going to likely have to make decisions and making sure that you ask lots of questions around times where decisions need to be made. The other good planning is to ask about how to stay ahead of potential hurdles. So I'd be asking, what action plan can I put in place if I end up having breathlessness down the road? What action plan can I put in place if I'm likely to have a seizure? What action plan can I put in place if I am no longer able to get to my bathroom in my home? So action plans are extremely important And you don't want to have to find the action plan in a crisis and when you're needing it. These are the kinds of things you want to plan ahead. So in a way, we want to ask questions about the here and now, and we also want to ask questions about the future. So we want to toggle back and forth uh, asking questions in this kind
0: of time travel. Okay, so to build on what you're saying... It's not just about asking questions and creating action plans, but it's about sharing the information or plans with others who need to know, especially among your inner crew. Frankly, even just sharing in a conversation about uncertainty and about possible what ifs, that's powerful because it signals to the inner crew that you're open to acknowledging that we have to walk two roads. And so I think that's one of the biggest reasons why people are scared to invite themselves to the conversation. And what we have heard over and over is that there's this assumption that no news is good news or that the doctor will tell me what I need to know when I need to know it. And I think many patients and families, they just don't realize that some or many doctors, they're just not comfortable talking about the big picture of an illness or they don't get much training in it and they don't want to feel like they failed and they don't want to give up on their patients. And so that's why they're so hopeful. And I think realistic conversations about walking to roads, that conversation doesn't happen. It gets kicked down the road until, well, one day the road ends. And that's where we feel like it's just like this sudden drop off a cliff.
1: The truth is, many people will go through an illness and never want to look into the future. And again, we're not going to change people. But the majority of people that I meet, after they get over the initial, you know, fear of knowing what's in the crystal ball, feel way better, stronger, more in control, grounded, prepared with more information. And that might sound so ironic, or, you know, maybe other people, but not me. But I'm telling you, most people can make decisions when they have all the information.
0: The other take home that I really wanted to delve into is about the family, and the rest of your, of your inner crew. Because what we're talking about is inviting yourself to the conversation. They're often being asked to be the advocate for the patient. But we often hear from caregivers and families how they feel invisible. They were not seen or recognized by the healthcare system. Um, not just at any one visit, but over and over and over again. Um, I once had a caregiver say, for four years, I was never once asked, how am I doing? And we know that the family has such critical information. So part of what we're saying, invite yourself, is to know that you have the power to be seen and to be heard and to advocate for the patient. And sometimes you need to do that when the patient isn't there. Um, and you might need to you know, share some of that information with the team privately or on your own. But the other part of that is the caregiver and family have their own needs, too, and they should be inviting themselves to the conversation so that they can be fully aware and to meet their needs during the illness and after as well. There's lots of things that happen after someone passes away that there's still, you know, trauma and things they have to unpack and grief that needs to be dealt with. So this idea of inviting yourself is not just for the patient, but it's for the family to know that they have to be the advocate for the patient, but also for themselves, It's more
1: comfortable to speak up often when you have someone by your side. Not always, but often it is. So it's helpful to buddy up with someone where you may not remember what questions you wanted to ask. That's a very common uh, comment that people make, but your loved one may remember that you had just been asking X, Y, and Z and can speak on your behalf or ask questions. Um, And both of you will have different needs for different pieces of information. If you go to the visits by yourself as the patient, you wouldn't necessarily ask the questions that your loved one would want to ask. So buddying up is not only protective, but it ensures that each of you will get an opportunity to ask the questions and also receive information that you need.
0: I think another part of that is knowing that if you're the patient, you know, similar to our key about anticipate ripple effects, the people who are caring for you you know, are taking on a lot and just being aware that they might need, you know, giving them permission to have their own time, to ask their own questions, to do some self-care or just to take time away. You know, uh, inviting your um, family member to speak up really
1: uh, is like acknowledging that they are also having an illness experience and their questions matter. Um, and it allows the patient and the family to keep the communication lines open.
0: So let me just take a step back here, and I want to reemphasize that this key, invite yourself, can be linked back to all the other keys. It is the foundation for the waiting room revolution, which is ultimately about the idea of taking back control of this illness experience. You don't need permission to take the lead or to initiate a conversation that is important to you with your healthcare providers or your inner crew. You can start the conversation about what is it that you want, what you need, what you might need to plan for. All of this is true. And that is the way that you can be more prepared and proactive about how to manage the future. And the earlier you start, the more time you will have. And that's how you get more control and more choices.
1: So don't forget where this whole movement has come from. Uh, it's come from learning from people who are at the very end of a progressive life-limiting illness, who have shared with us uh, what the trials and tribulations have been and what they wish they had done differently. And so many people tell us, I wish I had asked more questions. I wish I had spoken up. I wish I wasn't so quiet. I wish I didn't just go with the flow. I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish. And so this is why CN and I have said, well, you know, then we need to think about how can we change the illness experience for patients and families, given that that's what they're telling us. So this is why we wanted to emphasize this idea of trying to shift in all the ways we've mentioned in all the episodes from this way of being with the healthcare system, where you just go with the flow and assume that things are going to work out is a dangerous way to be as a patient and a family facing a progressive illness. It's much more protective for patients and families when they are woke, when they have eyes wide open, when uh, someone on their informal team and their crew is willing to seek and receive real, truthful, honest, open information. This is the most protective way to keep you and your family feeling grounded and in the know throughout the entire illness journey. It's the way that you'll be able to make decisions that reflect who you are, that honor how you've lived your life, and the way you want things to unfold. But we cannot change the illness. But all the things we've been talking about is to help change the experience that you're going to have as you go through the
0: illness. Okay, so let's bring in a guest at this time. We're going to introduce to you Trisha, who is Sammy's best friend from childhood. And we're really glad that she joined us because she has a story to tell us that can illustrate Invite Yourself Well. So thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your story of caregiving for your dad?
2: So uh, about 10 years ago, my dad had throat cancer and went through treatment. At that point, it was going to be curable. Uh, He went through radiation. They removed something from his vocal cord. And that was the end of that. And then about a year ago, he received the news that the cancer was back. And he was told this time that there would be nothing that they could do. There were no treatments, no radiation, no chemo, no surgery. It would be too risky. They told him that it was terminal. So, and that he would have about, and I was like, terminal? What? Did they actually say terminal? Like, I remember being so questioning that word and what that word meant. And six to 12 months, he would probably have about six to 12 months. Is it six or is it 12? I kept wondering. Anyway, so that was that.
0: How long did he, um, did you have with him after that?
2: So it's so crazy but he actually had about six months
0: and so after the news that the cancer was back what was that journey like
2: yeah so, he, so basically uh my dad didn't accept that news but he didn't want to give up so he persisted and persisted and saw other people and it turned out they decided that they would go with a very radical treatment a plan for 50 treatments so he was going to have um for five week, twice a day radiation. And my dad lived in the West End and he was gonna go back and forth twice a day for these treatments. And it sounded pretty awful, but he really wanted to do it. And the hope was that it would shrink the tumor enough. And, um, you know, he was having trouble swallowing and that it was, you know, that he he could prolong things. He knew he would not be cured, but there was still this big question, like what, would, what was the end result gonna be? About three weeks into the treatment, after all the taxi rides and drives back and forth, um, he couldn't do it. He was dehydrated. Um, His swallowing during that whole time, and we kept thinking, is it because of the radiation or is it because of his cancer? But he was starting to not really be able to eat enough or get enough in him, and he was losing so much weight. And they ended up admitting him to Princess Margaret, which was actually the best news because so they suspended his treatments. He was devastated because he only wanted to get to the 50 treatments so badly. And they were able to resume them. And he did finish this treatments, 50 treatments and ring the bell. It's all he wanted to do there. It's actually the gong. (laughs) And um, so he was so excited. He finished that on Christmas Eve and I drove him home. And a week later, he ended up back in the hospital.
0: Okay so tell us more about that hospitalization and what happened
2: close to the end of the treatments beginning of December at Princess Margaret. He couldn't swallow it all anymore, and um he had aspirated and all this stuff, and he they did a, put a g tube in, I think it's called and um now the, now it' was like, okay, oh, here's the nutritionist, and she here you have to have five boxes of bottles of this, and oh, and it was this whole stupid plan and um. He couldn't get enough of that in him either. He was doing it through a syringe at the time. It was a disaster.
1: From the time your dad was diagnosed with his reoccurrence of his cancer and the time that he passed, it was a relatively short period of time. It was six months and really busy. Um, There were doctor's appointments and 50 radiation treatments, like you said, and complications. He needed a feeding tube and back and forth and back and forth and admissions. Um, How did you get the information that you needed to know what was happening in this tornado?
2: So I'm somebody who needs to understand everything. I am a questioner. So I asked a lot of questions like they didn't know who they were up against. (laughs) And my dad is the same way. And I guess I got it from him. So my dad was very smart and he knew about his diagnosis, his treatment. He knew about all the medications he was taking, when he should take them. And because his voice wasn't strong physically, I was his advocate. And I asked a lot of questions. I hate being confused. And um, because I was his advocate, I needed to be clear about everything and I felt like I am also someone who feels like don't beat around the bush with me don't sugarcoat and don't treat me like I don't understand things like I'm I've just been launched from space and I've never and don't I'm not stupid and my dad hated when people treated him like he was stupid.
1: Tricia, what would have happened had you not been the kind of person or your dad hadn't been the kind of person to ask a lot of questions?
2: How would the story have been different, do you think? I guess if I wasn't the kind of person to ask questions, it would have been terrible. Like my dad would have not received half of, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. I can't imagine anyone not asking really, because you can't really be in the hospital. You can't be dying.
0: And just leave it to to them to take care of you. Okay, so Tricia, let me ask you this question. Was there a situation that arose where it was important that you you invited yourself to the conversation?
2: Sort of like with the feeding tube, I guess it was like my dad at one point, he thought, well, the feeding tube's going to go in and at least for six weeks, you know, my dad's dream was to swallow again. And have not have a feeding tube and be able to play golf and um, we were thinking the feeding tube was temporary and we had to really say is this feeding tube ever coming out and he said no it probably won't Um, so but we really had to ask that if we didn't ask that my dad probably would have thought that he was going to swallow again oh and he was always nauseous and I kept saying like Maybe he doesn't have to have so much of the food every time he he gets a feed, he's nauseous. Oh well, let's just we're gonna switch the tube to the a different tube and you know slow it slow it down a bit and I remember asking like is there like why what's the point of making of having him have a little bit more food if in the end it doesn't matter?
1: I remember the months that you were going through. This journey with your dad. I remember it very clearly because it wasn't that long ago and we spoke so often. But what I remember was that you were constantly very, very confused about what was being said. The information wasn't presented to you in a way that you could understand it. So a lot of the time we spent on the phone was about decoding the real meaning behind what doctors and nurses were saying to you and the bits and pieces of information that they were offering, you needed help stringing it all together and you needed, um, help figuring out exactly what the meaning was behind it. And did they really mean this or did they really mean that? There was always
2: this like, Oh, um, you know, great, you're doing great, your oxygen levels great today, or awesome, no temperature. And I don't know, there was just times where it was like, really, like, okay, so, so how, why is that so awesome? Like, there was always a big focus on, you know, what they were going to do next, and the treatment and the feeding and how much did he eat today. And there was always this focus on those little like, things, it wasn't ever really about the big picture. Because I remember thinking, okay, but then what? I kept thinking that. I kept thinking, but then what? Like, so we were told that there was no cure and there was nothing they could do and they brought in all different people, but nobody was still ever saying, and this is what this means now. This does mean that you're going to die soon. And we had to really pull it out of them. Well, and there's not much more. And my dad was like, and they said something about, "Well, so we're going to talk about, you know, maybe palliative care. And at that point, I was like, triggered. What do you mean palliative care? Until we, um, my dad decided he wanted to be at home, not to go to like a hospice or, and I, and I still was questioning, like, well, what, what does it mean? Like, and the doctor was like, well, to qualify for palliative care, a doctor at the hospital actually has to Claim that the patient maybe has less than three months or prove it, or I didn't know what they meant, like to get that type of care. So I was like, oh, so what are you saying then? That he has less than three months to live now?
1: Yeah, again, these are examples. It sounds like where there was a lot of talking happening, but you kept wanting to understand what did it actually mean? They would say A or B or C. But you didn't know how to put that in context of the big picture. You knew his illness was incurable. You knew he was going to die, and so did he. But when they came every day and said things about the day-to-day business of his cancer, most of your questions were coming from a place of, okay, well, what does that mean in the big picture? What does that mean in the long run? What are you really trying to tell me? Am I supposed to read into that? Um, you You were in a position of always having to decode.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it, that a big part of inviting yourself is always having to decode what healthcare providers are saying. So in this case, was your father close to death or not?
2: After having to ask and ask and ask and ask about, you know, which we got enough of, of what stage he was at in his, in his illness. Once we found that out, we had a whole other challenge ahead of us. Once we found out, where my dad was at in his illness. We, at that point, it allowed us to focus on the goals and what was most important for my dad and for us. And that was the goal of of comfort. And it was frustrating because every time we had a new nurse or a new team, it felt like we had to ask them if they understood what the goals were for my dad. It was like we were renegotiating each time. So had we just sat back and gone with the flow he wouldn't have had his needs met or his care wouldn't have matched his desire for comfort.
0: Can I ask a different question Trisha? Another message we talk about is how important caregivers are to the equation. But they are at high risk of burnout sometimes because it's easy to be ignored by the system or because they always put their needs last. And so I'm curious, what was your experience like?
2: You know, I was working at the time Uh, I had my daughter and I have two teenagers. One of them was at at the time and I was juggling a whole bunch of stuff. I was running back and forth. I went to the hospital every single day. Um, I wasn't really eating a whole lot because my dad wasn't eating. And so I never ate there because I never wanted to walk in with food. I felt like that was kind of rude or even a drink. So I was burning out for sure. I was on autopilot. And there were times that, that we were ignored for sure. Um, or, you know, I put the nurse would say, I, I page that doctor, they're going to come soon. Um, and they didn't because they're busy. Uh, so we, we, wait, many days went by where things could have happened and didn't happen.
0: Do you have any final advice for listeners? Those who might be afraid to rock the boat or invite themselves to the conversation?
2: I can see how someone might feel, especially if it's not in their personality to be a firecracker like me um, and bug people. I guess I could see how you might think, "Oh, doc, they're busy." The doctor, oh, oh, they said everything's great. They came in. They did. Yep. Yeah, mm, they okay. And and they can just, you know, maybe think, "Well, they haven't come by today because they're busy. Don't bother them. We don't want to get on anyone's bad side." And I mean, my dad did used to joke saying. He never wanted me to rock the boat about anything. Like I think people maybe are afraid to to do that, but I, you really can't, you really can't be afraid. You just have to go with your gut and speak up respectfully.
0: Trisha, thank you so much for sharing your story about your dad.
2: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: So let's wrap up. Sammy, what are the three take-homes for this episode called Invite Yourself?
1: The first take-home is to ask, ask, ask. At the beginning of an illness, in the middle, in the middle again, in the middle again, and at the end of an illness. Throughout the entire illness journey, ask as many questions as you possibly can. The second take-home would be to share. Share as much as you possibly can with your family and your inner crew, as well as your healthcare team. The more they know about you, the more your illness journey is going to feel like you. And the third take-home message would be, it's not just about the main actor, um, the patient, it's about the supporting actors as well. Um, So what I'm referring to is the caregivers. The caregivers are as much a part of this story and the journey as the patient. They have to journey with the patient and they will also have their own illness story as well. And so they too need to be invited to ask, ask, ask and share, share, share. Caregivers, don't be invisible. You are important members of this care team and have a lot to offer. And you need to be acknowledged for the journey that you're going through as well.
0: Don't wait for doctors to invite you to the conversation. You can be the initiator. You can take control, ask questions, plan ahead, and do it the earlier you do it. And the more often you do it. What we've learned is that they're going to get more information and the experience is going to be, it's going to be better. They're going to be more prepared and more proactive because they were more aware and not so in the dark.
1: So far, we've been talking mostly about the beginning and the middle of the illness journey. And all of these episodes have been helpful, hopefully, to build your confidence and skills and given you snappy ways to get what you need um, right from the time of diagnosis. The next episode is going to be focused on the last chapter of the journey.
0: Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Xian Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. For more information, visit us at WaitingRoomRevolution.com Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.